O you of little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that, you, that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. I'd like to actually to do an exercise with you this morning uh, as we get started. I call it the uh, soul care spheres exercise. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of several different sort of spheres of your life, like marriage, if you're married, uh, family relationships be another sphere, um, work or career if you're a student, school, um, finances. And what I'd like you to do, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to stop talking for 20 seconds because I really want you to do this. I want you to think of each of those spheres of your life and maybe some others, and I want you to color code them in your mind. If you happen to bring colored pencils with you, you can do that on paper, but assuming you didn't, color code them in your mind according to how life-giving they are to you. At the top would be green, things that are just joyful and deeply life-giving, Below that, maybe blue, things that are positive and meaningful in your life. Gray would be spheres of your life that you just feel kind of neutral about right now. Yellow, if you colored a sphere in your mind, yellow, that would mean it's a source of kind of recurrent anxiety or trouble. And red would mean this is a part of your life that is just sucking the life out of you. So I'm gonna stop for a second. I want you to think of those different spheres and just color code them for a second in your mind from green all the way down to red. marriage, family relations, work or career, school, finances. Now, there are many helpful things that we could do with this little exercise. In fact, I encourage you maybe if you're in a community group or with your spouse or family, this might be a good thing to do even tonight. Just kind of think through that, maybe write it out on paper what those different colorings would be for those different schemes. I, I do this exercise, I did it again recently. My point in doing this with you today is because when I think about different aspects or spheres of my life, there are some that are beautifully verdant green, like teaching and preaching and writing. I love doing these things. There are some that are blue, some that are gray, some that are yellow, and then there are some spheres of my life that are life-draining red. And for me, the number one area, the number one red area just so happens to be to sit right on the text God has for us today from Luke chapter 12. Yes, it's the area of riches or money or wealth. Not just cash and how much money you have in the bank, but actually all the goods and services and opportunities and freedom and pleasure that money promises and often provides us. And I can take a pretty good guess that many of you feel the same way. Whether you have a lot of money or not, it doesn't actually matter whether this is a yellow or maybe red area for you. Well, it turns out that's not just a modern phenomenon. Rather, anxiety about, worry about, the potential dangers of wealth are actually universal human experiences. They're topics of discussion you find in the Greek philosophers and the Roman philosophers all throughout human history, including and maybe especially in the teachings of Jesus. 
I won't ask right now for a show of hands of how many people uh, would put it as a red or yellow, these financial areas. But even if for you, that is a blue or green area, and I envy you if that's the case, this text and this message, I think God has something uh, especially relevant to say to us, no matter where we are, no matter what our financial situation is, and no matter how we feel about it. So for me, it's red though. And so honestly, when this text was assigned for me today, I wasn't overly thrilled because I knew I was going to have to, again, go in the presence of God, think about these issues, think about God honestly, think about my checkbook, and that actually causes me a lot of anxiety and a lot of guilt. But God is always good, and he's kind, and he's inviting us, and what I'm going to invite you to today is to a life that's more full of life and more beautiful. And what I wanna do is just simply walk through these verses that we've heard read, and then I would seek to understand what's being said and what's not being said, how it all fits together, and then just ask how it applies to our lives. I, I want us to pause and pray uh, once more before we do so. Our kind Father, we thank you for providentially uh, interweaving our lives to this moment, to this day. I'm mindful of those words, even as I step up behind this pulpit today, that you care, you care for me, and you care for everyone here. And so on that truth and promise, we humble ourselves before you and ask you to speak and help us and transform us by seeing you. And we ask these things in Jesus' powerful name, amen. Now, we're doing a series on parables. If there's your first time here, we're very glad you're here. Most of you probably know we've been doing a series on parables. Such an important and beautiful and really essential part of Jesus' ministry God is a poet. Do you know that? Poetry would not exist if God were not a poet because poetry is the highest form of human language, one of the highest experiences. God himself is a poet. He's an artist. He is infinitely creative. He, and he doesn't just speak to us in flat language, but rather the Bible is full of vivid and evocative images like any great poet or musician. And Jesus' parables reveal this creativity particularly. And Jesus' parables do even more than just reveal God's creativity. Jesus' parables are not just husks that can be cast away, but rather Jesus teaches in these vivid stories and images and allegories and similes because parables can do something that straight up teaching cannot. That is, they often shock our tidy vision of reality. Jesus' parables regularly reveal to us paradoxes and shocking twists about who God is and what his kingdom is like, and that's meant to shake us up and wake us up, and I think our parable for today is certainly in that category. There's no place, though, where this happens more than the Gospel of Luke, which gives a lot of Jesus' parables. A lot of them are in Luke, including some ones that only Luke gives us that we all know because they're so powerful. The Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, the Tax Collector and the Pharisee. Maybe you know that one from Luke 18. And Luke particularly emphasizes the theme of wealth and possessions. It's not just in our parable for today. This is actually a very common theme throughout Luke's parables, as well as actually through Luke overall. When you read Luke, you see over and over again the issue of possessions and money and wealth comes up. As, as one scholar has noted, almost every chapter of both Luke and the book of Acts, which he also wrote, has some reference to money and material possessions. It's not a minor note at all. And when we get to Luke chapter 12, we're, here we are, we're in the middle of the book, 
We're deep into Jesus' ministry already. He's well known in, in his ministry. He's going around. He has lots of followers. He has lots of enemies. And they have lots of people trying to figure out what this guy is up to. And we'll be focusing on Luke chapter 12, as we heard read, particularly verses 13 to 34. But putting it in its context, even the verses before that, if you have a Bible, you can just glance your eyes there. If not, I'll just explain it. The verses that or before chapter 13 and chapter 12, are also kind of all tied together with a theme, and that theme is one of fear and anxiety. Who are you? We're not supposed to fear people, but we're supposed to, quote-unquote, fear God in the sense of think about him not being living in anxiety about fear. We're supposed to focus our hearts on God, not humans. And that leads us to our text for today, which I think happens in three phases. And let's look at the first one. The first one is chapter 12, verses 13 to 14. Someone in the crowd, so Jesus is there walking and teaching. Someone in the crowd hollers out, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And Jesus turns to him and says, friend, who sent me to be your judge or arbiter over you? It's an odd little, odd little story. In some ways, it's not odd because, of course, families squabbling over money, especially inheritance money, is a very universal phenomenon. Some of you have probably experienced that. And what seems to be the situation here, you have two brothers. We don't know if it's an older, and a, I mean, it is probably an older or younger brother. We don't know who's actually calling out and asking for arbitration, um, whether the, the older brother who would get double as much as the younger brother in this culture, if the younger brother's complaining about that or the double brother is or whatever, or the older brother is. But we know that this kind of situation brings out the worst in people, in us, really. We can think of, Actually, a lot of famous examples in modern times. You may know the Gucci family, the Koch brothers. Um, you may know that Adidas and Puma are actually two companies both based in the same town in Germany because two brothers couldn't get along and split the empire. So even today, there are factories on opposite sides of this little town in Germany, one making Adidas, one making Puma. This is a universal human phenomenon that people fight, families fight over money. As many of you know, the saying, make friends in business, don't do business with friends or family because it's often a mess. And so too here. And what's happening in the story is that in Jesus' day, rabbis and respected teachers, which Jesus is clearly seen as a respected teacher, they were often asked to adjudicate what's the right thing to do in these situations, to give their opinions. I always think of uh, this one of the many great little lines from Fiddler on the Roof where somebody says, Rabbi, is there a blessing for the czar? And he says, yes, may the Lord keep the czar far away from us, right? This is a, a typical kind of thing where you ask the rabbi for an opinion and this is who Jesus is perceived to be. And so it's normal that they ask him what he thinks. What's weird is how he responds. It strikes us as odd, I think. He's, he's not just triggered here, but his response to this is, this is not his calling. Yes, he is a respected teacher, but he's not called to just arbitrate people's squabbles. This deciding who gets money, that's only a surface issue. And what Jesus does, he takes this opportunity of the squabbling over money, and he says, I'll tell you what the real issue is. And that leads to the, to the real point, and that's the second phase of our story in verses 15 to 21. The second phase is where we have the parable, the parable that's driving what we're talking about today, what we call the parable of the rich fool. Now, before Jesus gives us that parable, he gives us what I like to call a front-loaded nimshaw. 
as I'm sure you call it as well, uh, a front-loaded nimshal. And what that means is a, a nimshal, that's just the Hebrew word for like the moral of the story, the point being made by a parable or an illustration. So you think of like Aesop's fables, you think of those, you probably, a lot of those, you know those, when the dog loses his bone by dropping it into the water because he sees another dog with a bone that he's greedy for, and so he loses it. Well, it turns out it's only his reflection, right? Then the, the nimshal, the moral of the story is something like, be content with what you have. If you're greedy, you may end up with nothing, right? That's, that's how parables and proverbs and illustrations work. Well, Luke, of all the gospel writers, he gives us a lot of nimshals. He tends to tell us exactly what the parable is supposed to be saying, and he particularly likes to tell them before he gives us the parable. And so, hence, the front-loaded nimshal. Feel free to use that now, trademark Jonathan Banks in 2018. So, so 12.15 gives us the point, at least a guiding idea for what this parable is going to be about. So before we get to the parable, we get uh, Luke 12.15, and here's what it says. Jesus said to them, after these people ask about him dividing possessions, he says, actually, take care, beware. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So take care, be on your guard against all kinds of coveting or greed or lust for things. You think of the, the 10th commandment of the, of the 10 commandments is that. Why? He gives a reason for it, not just because that's the wrong thing to do, because actually there's no life there. Life actually is not found. Life cannot be defined as much as I think it is by one's possessions. And with that in mind then, with that front-loaded nimshal, then we hear the parable and let's hear it. Verse 16, he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. He thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns. I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. Okay, it's fine. All good. In fact, wealth is a sign of a blessing from God all throughout the Bible. Wealth is a sign of favor. This man has had a good year. There's nothing, he hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't been immoral in terms of he didn't acquire it by deceit or something. He's raised fields. Apparently he's done a good job and God has blessed it. Rain has come, sun has come. It has produced so much more than he even needed. So there's some financial prudence. All of us, I think, would rightly admire this person, right? Here's a successful businessman. Definitely sign him up to our synagogue and our pledge drive, right? This guy's successful. It's good, it's positive. Then verse 19, and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relaxed, eat, drink, and be merry, okay? Still seems like a pretty good guy. I mean, many of us uh, maybe feel a little uncomfortable with that eat, drink, and be merry because, you know, that's somewhat of a, a short-sighted perspective, but still, um, you know, this guy's not a really bad guy. Again, we could admire his sort of business acumen, and this is what makes what happens in verses 20 and 21, I think, so shocking and disturbing. Look there now with me. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. This is the only parable in the New Testament where God actually shows up as God, as an actor. That is, he shows up as an actor who speaks. And that language of fool is 
Mr. T. Strong, right? For those of you who grew up in the 80s, 70s, and 80s, this is shocking, right? The simple point within the parable is that his wealth's not going to do him any good on the other side of, of earthly life, as used to be said, you know, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses kind of thing. Okay, that's the simple point. But we get some explanation of the shocking story in verse 21. The man's problem was that he wasn't rich toward God, but still, what are we to make of this parable? I mean, it, I think for me, and I bet for a lot of you, it actually raises an odd mix of thoughts and emotions. I, I feel a little uncomfortable with this parable about how God is showing up and this guy seemed to be just a wise financial investor and it, it seems odd. And in fact, it's just you, if it doesn't feel odd, then the parable's not doing its work because this is precisely what Jesus' parables do. They lead us in and then they shockingly twist us. We're sucked in by this reasonably sound economic financial management, so it seems, and then we're told that it's not as it is. Why is this man called a fool? What's wrong? Well, the danger of possessions is something that Luke's already talked about several times and Jesus has. We think of like the four soils parable where um, one type of seed is choked out by love of money and, and that's certainly a danger. But do you notice, if you look back at verses 17 to 19, you notice that five times this rich fool speaks with first-person pronouns. What will I do? It's my fruit and my barns and my goods, and I'll say to my soul. It's very much thinking just about himself, and it reminds me of James chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. I can't help but think that these texts are connected. James writes, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead of this sort of, today or tomorrow we'll do this, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and we'll do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. I think this gets to the core of our man's problem. Not that he has wealth or even that he's been successful or even wise. These are blessings from God. The problem is that he apparently feels no concern and acts without compassion towards the needs of others. It's all about his production and success. There's no condemnation of financial prudence or saving for others. The issue I'd suggest to you is his self-centeredness and his self-consumption. For example, the Old Testament had already instructed him that although it looks to us like he was just a good man, it's pretty clear from the Old Testament perspective that there's something he failed to do. And if you've been here for a while, you may remember that when we talked about the book of Ruth, one of the laws from Deuteronomy that comes up is repeated in Luke is that, or is repeated in, in the story of Ruth, is that those who have fields are supposed to leave the edges so that the poor and needy can glean from them. This man apparently didn't that. He gathered all in and it was so successful that his abundance didn't result in an outward look of, I'm gonna bless others with my abundance. His abundance looked and encouraged an inward look of, look how much more I have, what can I do? You see, our wealth opens up choices for us 
that allow us to pursue our own interests in a variety of ways. And such pursuits can easily keep us from using our resources in a way that is most honoring to God. This man, by contrast, he sees wealth as an opportunity to live a life that focuses on comfort and ease rather than outward blessing. But even in that, I think some nuance is needed because the rich fuel's problem is not that he cares about his own interests. That's natural and good, and we'll come back to that here in a few minutes. Rather, the rich fool's problem is that the, that's the only thing he cares about is consumption and multiplication. Let me read verse 21 again. So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. In this instance, I think being rich toward God must mean a posture of dependence on God, but also giving of energy and time and resources to God's work in the world. God doesn't need our money, right? Being rich toward God means engaging our hearts and our behaviors in God's work in the world. I think of how Luke chooses to describe Jesus' ministry right at the beginning back in Luke chapter four. Jesus stands up in a synagogue and he reads from Isaiah 61 to introduce his ministry. And what does Isaiah 61 say? That he has come to proclaim liberty to the captives and to lift up the oppressed and the poor and needy. That's how Jesus describes his own ministry. And this man is the opposite of that. And we could stop here And I think we would all feel some pinch and pull of this parable. But I think there's one more, a third phase of this story that we need to finally understand it. And it comes from verses 12 to, uh, chapter 12, verses 22 to 34. Now, we've heard it read. I'm not gonna read all these verses again, but I do want us to see what's being said. First, notice in these verses that Jesus connects this parable that we just heard with the verses that follow. He says in verse 22, therefore. You see, the parable is powerful in and of itself, but Jesus goes further with what the implication of this for us is. And what you see in verses 22 to 34, and particularly through 31, is very straightforward. In the area of money, you and I must fight to not let anxiety and worry and fear consume and control us. That's what he says over and over again. Do not be anxious. Do not let money and possessions and concerns about bills and cars and all these things consume us. Okay, Jesus, thank you. Easy for you to say. When money was short, you just multiplied bread, right? You're late for work, can't get your car started, just walk across water, no problem, right? And it also doesn't seem to work when we are anxious for someone just to say, don't be anxious, don't worry. Just happened last night with my wife. That is, I said this. She was expressing anxiety a lot of things, and I tried to kindly say, most of, you know, 95% of the things we worry about don't ever come to be. And she rightly said, you know, it doesn't help when you tell somebody who's anxious not to be anxious. And I was reminded that is the case. You see, this is why we have these verses and why These verses are not just a command. Yes, there is a command to not be anxious, but it's not a command that is meant to cause us more anxiety or to shame us for worrying, right? Because anxiety and worrying is an entirely normal part of the fallen world. Rather, these beautiful and poetic verses in in verses 22 to 31 especially 
are designed to inspire us and remind us why at the end of the day, we can refocus our hearts and not be consumed by anxiety and money. It's because we have a God, the Father, who is for us. That's what all these images are about. Do you see that? God provides for birds, he says. And if God cares about ravens, then he cares about you way more than that. Anxiety doesn't really help, does it, he says. You can't add one um, bit to your height or time to your lifespan or make one hair gray or white or black. It, it doesn't matter. I, anxiety is a terribly inefficient thing to give ourselves to. It consumes a ton of energy and it produces no output. Flowers, he says, they live for a brief time and then die. Yet God cares for them and he makes them beautiful. God the Father cares about you way more than flowers. And at the end of the day, verse 31, the solution is to seek first his kingdom, to set our hearts and minds on that, not in this world, and God will provide. So all these verses together, you see, are the opposite of the rich fool. He's not seeking first God's kingdom, he's seeking his own. And the result is that he actually does have all that he needs in the short term, but not for eternity. Where you and I are, set, are, are invited to say, God is a father who knows and cares for you. Yes, and I'll say to you, Anxiety is a normal part of life, but we don't have to be consumed by it when we see that God cares for us. And then, if that's not enough, this whole passage of Holy Scripture comes around with this beautiful and very important conclusion in verses 32 and 34. Let me read these verses for you. So do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give alms, make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near, no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, God is happy, Jesus says, to give to his children and to his kingdom citizens. He is good and generous. Before Chick-fil-A existed, he gave to us, we thanked him and he said, my pleasure. <laughs> It is his pleasure to give to us. You see, this is a picture of God the Father's care and grace and provision and heart. God doesn't just motivate us by a stick saying, don't be anxious, don't do this. There's a rich fool. He mostly motivates us by a carrot, by what's before us, inviting us to say, but consider that God your Father is happy to give to you. Seek first his kingdom. The rich fool's problem was not that he wanted things, is that his heart was not seeking first the kingdom, it was seeking first himself. And God appeals to us and says, seek first the kingdom, and God is present and he will be with you and provide for your needs. Now, there are two important nuances to all of this before we move to some application. Particularly, verse 33 is a little odd and needs, to, needs a word. When Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy, we need to understand this, not as if poverty and absolute poverty and divesting of all we have were a virtue and a universal call to everyone to sell everything and give to everyone else. In fact, that immediately, then immediately about getting something from someone else. So let's say we all did that. 
right? We all sold everything we had and gave it to someone else. Let's say even in the church. Well, then that person would immediately have to sell all that they have and give it to everyone and it would just go on. And then of course there'd be nobody to buy anything because we wouldn't have anything because we all had given up everything, right? I mean, the, the point of this is not this sort of vision of this ultimate divesture of all that you have. That's not what that means. It doesn't even make any sense. That's the wrong vision. Moreover, when you look through the Gospel of Luke, for example, when Jesus calls a variety of people to call him, rarely, if ever, does he tell them to sell everything. And in fact, many do sell a lot, like Zacchaeus, a great counterexample of the rich fool, one who sees God's kingdom and sells half of what he has and pays back people four times, anybody he's wronged. We see in the, many Christians in the New Testament beyond are blessed by God and use their wealth uh, generously provide for the church. No, the, the point of sell your possessions is not that, again, self-imposed poverty is required of everyone or somehow virtuous in and of itself. You can be poor and greedy just as much as you can be rich and greedy, but rather that unlike the rich fool, we must always be rich toward God, not letting wealth consume our energy and our hearts and love because as verse 34 says, where our treasure is, there will our heart be also our very person. So just one thing, sell your possessions. We need to understand what that's saying and what it's not. And second nuance, the problem with wealth and possessions, you see, is again, not self-interest. It's not wrong to want to provide for yourself and for others, your family, for example. Rather, the problem is foolishly living for short-sighted self-interest. Verse 33 doesn't say, all desire for pleasure and goods and goods is bad. How dare you think of laying up treasures for yourself? Rather, it says, don't be foolish in laying up treasures that are only temporary, that won't last, that don't bless others and God. That's a foolish investment because it's laying up treasures for yourself that aren't going to pay back in the long run as opposed to being rich toward God. You see, this was the rich fool's problem. His treasure was not God and God's work in the world, but rather only himself. So finally then, putting this into text, this text in our context today, what does this mean for you and me? Whether your sphere is green all the way down to red when it comes to finances, what does it mean? Well, let me just repeat verse 15. Life does not consist in one's possessions. Do you believe that? you really believe it? As you get older, it becomes a little easier to understand and believe that life doesn't consist of possessions, but it's hard when you're younger and you've got a lot of bills and things are stressful. But you see, but if we really do come to believe that life isn't found in possessions, then we won't be controlled by them. We won't be controlled by the anxiety about finding life in possessions. And again, let me just say, it doesn't mean that worry or anxiety is always a sin. Some people are just more inclined toward that. Sometimes there are real things to worry about in life. The point is that this is an invitation to think and feel about these things differently. We're driven by anxiety about money when we actually do think that that's where life is found. We also need to realize today that Money can actually make us fools. You fool, God says. Think, think about it this way with me. What if we knew there was some substance that actually made you more and more stupid and crazy and increasingly foolish over the years if you ingested too much of it? Well, let's think of like 
the late 1800s and early 1900s when opium and cocaine were used as medicines. Basically, if you know anything about the history of music, the romantic period of music, everybody was just on opium the whole time. That's why Berlioz and all these people <laughs> created this crazy music. It's quite good, but still, it was a time when opium was given to people as just a sedative, right? Well, we look back on that now and we say, that was crazy because it completely ruined people's lives. They died young and they were completely addicted. Well, the shocking thing is, according to the Bible, that money or wealth is just like that. It's sweet, it's pleasurable, it gives us a lot of fun and happiness. But when we pass from the brokenness and distorted vision of this world, and when all of a sudden we see, like when doctors begin to see, wait a minute, we shouldn't be prescribing opium for people, then we'll see that it was foolish. The nuance is to recognize that as in so many things, wealth is a good servant, but a bad master, right? It has some good in it, but it's always calling out for us to ingest more and to find life therein, sweet whispering words of pleasure. And I think of like Jesus in this parable, rushing into the burning down crack house of our money blinded stupor slapping us across the face with the shocking parable so that our eyes focus and we realize reality, throwing us on his back and carrying us out into the fresh air of the kingdom of God. That's the image I had as I thought about this parable, that it's shocking, it's weird, it feels odd, it feels like, wait a minute, he's a good guy who's built up all these good things. This is Jesus saying, wake up and realize that wealth and possessions aren't all bad, but they can be like a drug that consumes us. In terms of application of this to us, I really appreciate and really recommend to you this very well-written and helpful book. I know Pastor Kevin's mentioned this before by Joe Rigney, The Things of Earth. Here's a really helpful quote from him we'll put up there that I think applies to all of us. He says, when you're talking about money and wealth, some people lean on the ascetic side, the sort of monkish side, and are highly attuned to the danger of worldliness, consumerism, and materialism. They're sensitive to the threat of mammon worship to the point that they must be reminded that God's gifts are good and ought to be received gladly. Others, however, treat the danger of greed and idolatry lightly and are far too comfortable with the worldliness around them. Luxuries and comforts easily become necessities of life, and they need these people need to be reminded that Jesus calls us to follow him on the road to the cross. Very wise words. I will say that I'd far rather party with the latter group and be friends with the latter group than the former group because they probably have nicer houses, etc. But the big issue for us is where do you see yourself in that group? Because all of us are somewhere in there. What do you do today if you're in debt? and your income barely meets or is lower than your monthly expenses, maybe you got a lot of kids or expenses or who knows what happened. What do you do? How do you apply the parable of the rich fool to yourself? Well, I would say God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't care about a rich giver. God doesn't need our money. I would just invite you to examine your hearts, examine your spending and look to God and say, here's what I can give. And I want you, I don't want money to consume me. I don't want anxiety to consume me. Here's what I've got, God. And he's glad, he's happy. What if your balance sheet today is clearly and consistently positive? You've got loads of money in the bank, no worries about the future. 
then I'd especially encourage you to consider whether this parable of the rich fool might have a different meaning for you. That is an invitation, again, to examine your heart, examine your priorities, examine your spending. No matter where you are today, I love what Pastor Kevin said a couple weeks ago when he was preaching on the Good Samaritan. The point of this text and this sermon is not to make us feel more guilty and more anxious. That would be ironic. He just said, don't be anxious. And now we're adding to that anxiety we already have about money, anxiety that I feel guilty and anxiety about money, right? That's not the point. God does not motivate us by shame and anxiety. Duty and guilt are horrible motivators. They don't have a long lasting effect and they distort our lives. Rather, I think all of this, all of this text today is casting a vision for life more beautiful and life more free. A life free from disordered loves, loving the wrong things in the wrong order that bring us not into life, but into bondage of anxiety and fear and manipulation now and judgment in the future. All of this you see is good news from Jesus today, not just good advice because Jesus is shattering our foolish worldview. He is slapping us across the face, inviting us into a space and place in which our lives, in which he is the good and perfect and providing father and king for his children and his citizens. And he gladly welcomes us and said, seek first, put your heart in the right way and God will provide and you will be free from this foolish giving of yourself to money. How beautiful that is. And today, as we close, as we do each week, as we gather together, to partake in the Lord's table, I'm reminded of his words again that he says, he won't eat or drink of this again until the kingdom comes, that time and the place when we will be free, when we will see clearly, when the fresh air of the kingdom enters our nostrils and our lungs and we cough out all the stupid blindness and foolishness of this world and we see him for who he is. And so today, if you are a Christian, if you are following Christ and he is your hope and your goal is oriented toward the kingdom, you're seeking first his kingdom, come and partake of this. This is what this is. This is a reminder. We're putting into our body the goods of the earth, into our tongues and into our throats and into our stomachs. We're tasting the goodness of creation to remind us that there's a new creation coming that is bigger and more beautiful than anything this world can offer. So don't be foolish. So we're gonna break the bread, it'll be before you, and there'll be two cups, one of wine and one with juice, whatever is your preference and desire. There, the wine will be marked with a little piece of twine. So if you're a believer today, use this time to meditate, maybe before you come up, reorder your heart, look to God, think about your checkbook maybe, and then come forward and rejoice in his goodness toward us. Let me pray.